preach after singing like that. If you will, take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, before we uh, read and dive in, just a couple of things. Uh, One is about the church that we actually prayed for this morning, City View. I recently learned uh, that their pastor, uh, Scott McDowell, has actually moved on to a different position. So they're without a pastor now. So that can inform the way that we pray for them uh, going forward to pray that the Lord will provide for them uh, a shepherd who will lead them well. The other thing is uh, that we prayed for Dottie Hadley, who's recovering from uh, uh, knee replacement. Uh, that, that is its own, its own difficulty, but one of the bummers is that she's in a rehab facility today on her birthday. So if you uh, are friends with her on Facebook or you have her number, it might just be a nice thing to, to send along a note of, uh, of, of hello uh, to her today. Um, before we, before we read still, I want to, uh, this is the time of year where we're, mo- we're moving toward our mission conference, which is the last two Sundays in September. And as part of that conference each year, we take a special offering, an offering that is meant to be beyond our regular giving, that we call our offering of praise. And uh, if you're a member of Gray Road, there's a letter in your uh, mailbox uh, laying all of this out. But I just want to briefly touch on what it is that we're going to be giving to this year. Our goal this year is $40,000. Now, that is actually a modest goal compared to what we actually gave last year, which was around $63,000 or something. But that seemed like an outlier, so we're still, this is a higher goal than last year, and I think we'd all be glad if if the Lord just provided far more than, than we're even asking. But I just want to explain to you briefly Uh, what it is that we are giving to. Uh, And so these, the way that I lay these out are the order in which the money will be used. The first is what's called the Afghan Initiative. All right, ABWE, which is a missions uh, agency that we partner with and and that we have sent people with, um, is working to extract and rescue 11 church leaders and their families from Afghanistan to come here and actually minister to the Afghan refugees that are here. Their shared culture, their shared language will remove a lot of obstacles to that. Now, the actual overall goal is around $2 million to get visas and move them and get them set up and all of those things. So, this is not a, a big portion of that, but that's a big portion of our offering. We believe this is a this is a good and, and, and worthy because we have unreached people groups coming to us and ones who've been saved out of those unreached people coming, uh, and we want to, in this way at least, partner with them so that the gospel might go to those who are here and who need hope. The next $5,000 will go to uh, the Delhi Bible Institute. We have been partners with DBI for a while now. If you are keeping up, Isaac Shaw has been, uh, his surgery was successful for, for his cancer, and he is cancer-free, so we are thankful for that. Uh, this money will continue to train young men to plant churches across North India, uh, one of the most unreached places uh, as far as population number is concerned in uh, the world. Uh, the next 5000 will go to our partners in Guatemala, Randy and Brenda Purcell. They are working to uh, Randy wrote me back once I told him what our goal was, and he said they were only able to buy about half of the Bibles that they wanted to give so that pastors can use them in their local churches and outreach, because these pastors don't have the money to go out and buy this kind, these kinds of Bibles. And so 
this $5,000 will buy uh, written Bibles, it will buy audio Bibles, and it will actually bless the children at their feeding centers at Christmas time, uh, which will be uh, a great thing for us to do. The next $5,000 will go to our partners here in Indianapolis on the northeast side, Daniel and Amy Rodas. Uh, who are planting a Spanish-speaking church. Many of you have gone up there to help. Uh, some of our musicians have gone up to play before uh, COVID. We were going once a month to play and, and help them in their services. And so this is a way there uh, uh, to help them as they continue to do the work of reaching those who are Spanish-speaking folks there on, in the near northeast side. They meet at Castleview, by the way. Castleview Church is where they meet. Uh, the next $2,500 will go to John and Pam Sharp, our partners that are coaching and mentoring new missionaries to the field. And this money will be used to help them travel to visit those who are on the field and encourage them. The next $2,500 will go to the Middle East because I can't say the names of the people that it's going to go to. But they're our newest mission partners, and they have to raise X number of dollars for what's called an out outfit and passage, which means all the costs to move to the field, you know, secure a place to live, furnish that place, get a car. It's a very large amount of money, but we want to contribute to that to help get them to the field. And then the last 10000 will be, remember last year we put aside money at the end for the flooring project out here. This is the last thing. So if you notice, missions comes first. If we only make it to 30000 that's fine. Uh, and we will do all of these wonderful things. And we'll all, you know, we'll gladly step over fraying carpet and all of these things, you know, and we'll try not to trip. But, uh, but this, is, this is the order in which we spend it because the... the Missions is first, and then things here for those uh, that special offering comes after that. All right, so there's a letter. I'm glad to talk to you more about that, but I wanted to do that in, in short form. Exodus chapter 20, I want to read the first 17 verses, and then we will pray, and then we will see what the Lord says to us through his word. Beginning in verse 1, this is what the Spirit says. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray together. Our Father, this is your word given through the inspiration of your spirit, and now we seek your spirit's help in understanding what you have said. Help us to think clearly. Help me to speak clearly. We pray you will give us open minds to receive, open hearts to love, and a will to do what you have said. Oh God, would you strengthen us? Would you convict us? Would you encourage us? Would you correct us? Would you train us for righteousness' sake? And would you call those who don't know Jesus home to yourself through the preaching of your word? We ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. We are working our way through the book of Exodus. Uh, Thus far, God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, and they have come across the Red Sea, and now they are at the foot of Mount Sinai where they receive the law. And we've slowed down um, even as their journey slows down at Mount Sinai. And we are taking these Ten Commandments one at a time. God has called them to be His holy nation. And these Ten Commandments, as it were, are the foundational statements of what it will mean for them to be His holy nation, to be set apart to be unique among all of the nations of the world. Last week, we looked at the sixth commandment in which Israel is to preserve life by not murdering. And this week, they are commanded to preserve marriage, preserve marriage, the the, the foundation of the family, the cornerstone of of a well-ordered, flourishing society. And so, before we actually get to these words, it is best if we take, I think, a running start, and we start before this to consider first the gift of marriage, the gift of marriage. Marriage is not a human invention. It is not, no matter what someone says, a mere human institution. It is not ours to fiddle with and toy around with. It's not like a vase made of Legos. You know, if you have a vase made of Legos, it's a vase, but you can take it apart and put it back together any way you want. You can still call it a vase made of Legos. But marriage is not that. Marriage is a vase made of fine porcelain. It's set. It's precious. It's priceless. And God has given it to us. God gave it in the beginning. He creates Adam and Eve, and then He brings them together. And this is what He has done is such a treasure, such a gift, that He says in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and and they shall become one flesh. Now think about that. Think about it in terms of marriage being a gift. That first, marriage brings the gift of a new family. He'll leave his father and mother 
This is not a geographical leaving, you understand. They would have all multi-generations lived under the same roof. It's not actually cutting off, uh, you know, cutting mom and dad out of your life. That's not what this is. This is a leaving of priority. Once the two say, I do, mom and dad is no longer the most significant relationship that they have. It is now your wife. It is now your husband. Even once children come along, something our society needs to hear, even once children come along, the highest priority in human relationships is husband and wife. And actually, it's very counterintuitive, isn't it? But it's true that actually the best thing for children is when they're not in the center rather than when they are in the center when still the highest priority is husband and wife. Marriage also brings the gift of companionship. That verse says that a man will hold fast to his wife. That verb is used in Deuteronomy of holding fast to God. You will keep His commandments and hold fast to Him. In other words, it's not a give it your best try kind of verb. It's not give it the old college effort kind of verb. It is stick to her and hang on to her no matter what kind of verb. That's the kind of verb that it is. And it creates the kind of companionship that is so strong, that is so bound, that whether you're richer or you're poorer, whether you're sick or you're healthy, whether things are better or they're worse. The companionship, the marriage doesn't break. In fact, the only thing that can pry the one hand from the other is death. Marriage gives the gift of new family and of companionship, and then marriage gives the gift of physical intimacy. The two become one flesh. This is God's design for physical intimacy. It is for marriage. One man and one woman for one lifetime. And it's for marriage alone. It's not if you just really love that person. It's not if you think one day we'll get married. It's not if there's already a ring on her finger and you're engaged to be married. It's not for those of the same gender. Physical intimacy is for one man and one woman in one lifetime commitment. It is for marriage only. Those who enter the sacred covenant of marriage, those who receive the gift of marriage. And this physical aspect of marriage seals the priority of the husband-wife relationship. This physical aspect of marriage heightens the companionship in marriage. It gives God-ordained pleasure. It advances God's purposes for marriage, including the purposes of having children. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that physical intimacy isn't optional. You know that married life is somehow more spiritual if it's absent. He's essentially saying that this aspect of marriage is not like the icing on the cake. It's actually an ingredient in the cake itself. 
So marriage brings a new family, and marriage brings companionship, and marriage brings physical intimacy. Now, if that's all it was, we could all agree this is a great thing. What a great thing God has given us. This is good. It's good for us. It's good for society. It's just good. But actually, marriage is more than that. It's more than that, isn't it? Though marriage is a great gift, it is not the focus of human existence. Now, that's important to remember, especially if you are here and you are single. Marriage is very good, but it is not the goal of life. Marriage is not the goal of life. Marriage does not solve problems. And if God's design is that you remain single, you won't be missing out on the thing in life. Because the truth is, is that marriage, which is a gift, points us to the thing in life. If you, as it were, the, mar- the gift of marriage points to the gift. The Apostle Paul actually quotes that text in Genesis 2 about a man leaving his father and mother holding fast to his wife. And then he says this, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a mystery. And all God's people said, amen. All right. Yeah. But it's not mystery in the way that makes you laugh, right? It's actually a mystery in the sense that there's something hidden in it that comes to light later. That's what that word mystery means. There's something hidden in it. And that thing that comes later that is revealed is the relationship between Christ and the church. Okay? Look at this picture of a a lotus flower bud. Now, if you don't understand how flowers work, all right, if you just dropped in from another planet and you don't know how this whole thing works, you would look at that and you'd say, wow, that is beautiful. That is really beautiful. And it is. But... There's actually more than the beauty of the bud. The bud is beautiful, but there's a greater beauty that comes from the bud. Look at this. You see, marriage between a man and a woman is the bud of a lotus flower. Christ in the church is the fully bloomed flower. Without Christ in the church, it would still be beautiful. It is still beautiful, even in people who don't recognize Jesus in the church, who don't seek to pattern their marriage after Jesus in the church. But it's not as beautiful. You don't see the full beauty. There's a fullness that you miss if it's just about one man, one woman, one lifetime. So that the priority of marriage points to the greater priority of Jesus. So that the holding fast in marriage points us to the one who holds us fast, Jesus. The the intimacy of marriage points us to an even greater intimacy than the physical intimacy between a husband and wife, and that is to know Jesus intimately. 
This is the gift of marriage. This is not commonplace. This is not ordinary. It is glorious. It is priceless. It is a gift. Some of us who have been married for more than a minute need to remember that. We need to remember that what we take for granted day in and day out is priceless. It's like walking by the Mona Lisa and thinking it's a nice sketch. The the marriage that you are in, the marriage if the Lord puts you in one, is a gift. A gift. And it's priceless. And that's why, with that in our minds, then we can then we actually begin to think of this rightly. We see, secondly, the devastation of adultery. The devastation of adultery. Adultery takes this glorious gift of marriage and beats it to a pulp and rips it to shreds and robs it of its glory and leaves it for dead on the side of the road. Adultery is devastating. My grandmother, Jojo, uh, passed away 11 years ago earlier this month, marked 11 years. And she wanted me to have her piano. This is the piano on which I played and sang Oh Holy Night more times than I could possibly count. Because it didn't matter if it was Christmas. If I went to JoJo's house, I was playing and singing Oh Holy Night. I still, if the piano was still there, until it wasn't there, I was still doing it every single time. In fact, when the family gathered around, we had our private family visitation Uh, for Jojo's funeral. We all stood around her and sang O Holy Night. Now, I think I was the only one who could carry a tune, but we all sang it. And she wanted me to have that piano. Now, it was in her living room. It is in our living room now. It struggles to stay in tune. Uh, there are a number of keys that when you play them won't stop sounding until they feel like it. Uh, All of the pedals don't work well. To the outside eye, this looks like a pretty ordinary thing. It actually looks like something you might want to replace and upgrade, but not to me. It's priceless. Now, I want you to imagine that one of our children thinks, this piano is not very nice. I think, really, I would enjoy piano playing more if we would just get a different piano. And so they came in, in order to force the issue, with an axe. And they took an axe and they hacked that piano to pieces. Well, you say, well, that's bad. That's destruction of property. Well, it's actually worse than that because this is priceless. And friends, adultery is the axe to JoJo's piano. That's what it is. It's nothing less than that. 
It's the axe to the piano. You shall not commit adultery. Adultery, most obviously, is physical. It occurs when two people enjoy physical intimacy and at least one of them is married to another person. It, you see, whether we're conscious of it or not, when we stand in a place like this or we stand at a, at a you know, uh, some idyllic location like a beach or a farm and we say, I do, whether we realize it or not, whether we're even consciously thinking it or not, when a man and woman come together in marriage, God is actually putting them together. That's what the Bible says. What God joins together. And adultery basically looks God in the face and says, you got it wrong. I'm not getting what I need. I'm not getting what I deserve here. You failed me, God. So I'm going to go find what I need, find what I deserve elsewhere. All the while, God is saying, Proverbs 5, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now, words like that fall on the ears of children and teenagers, and they think, you know, I mean, <laughs> but, but this is actually God's will for husbands and wives. This is God's will for moms and dads. And whether a child realizes it or not, the affection between a father and mother is actually very good for the stability of the child. It's a good thing. Now, when it comes to this physical adultery, it's almost never sudden, is it? Certainly nobody gets married thinking this. And nobody just wakes up one day and gets a wild idea that they'll break their wedding vows. It's slow, isn't it? It it warms up in the crock pot of a discontent heart until it's ready. Several years ago, there was a a prominent pastor in the UK who, who left his wife and his family to pursue a relationship with a woman who, who was said to be a friend of the family. And as you might imagine, because he was prominent, because he was well-known, there were all kinds of responses being written about, editorials and papers and all manner of things. Well, one lady, Ann Atkins, uh, wrote what may have been a unique response in the midst of all these things. This is what she wrote, I am an adulterer too. A few years ago, I was in a remote part of the world alone with the owner of an idyllic island. As the days went by, he became more attentive and more attractive. It was an extremely pleasant situation. I was enjoying myself greatly. My work required me to be there, and my head insisted I was above temptation. But I am not. The Bible tells me so. I knew I must leave urgently, and I did. By the grace of God, I didn't commit adultery. Not then, and not yet. But it's there, in my heart, biding its time. Happily, because I've always been taught that I'm capable of adultery, I've always been on my guard against it. After all, it doesn't start when you jump into bed. 
but months, years earlier, when you tell yourself that your friend understands you better than your spouse. It just starts with a little thought, doesn't it? Something small like that. You see, friend, you may not actually be in the throes of adultery. But have you ever had that thought with a colleague, with a neighbor, with a friend of the family? This man, this woman gets me in a way that my spouse doesn't. It's a dangerous thought. It's a doorway thought onto a path that leads to all manner of devastation. Have you thought it lately? Have you let it linger? Have you entertained such thoughts? Invited them to coffee with you so that you could think about it more and daydream. Oh, how much better it would be if You see, because adultery is not merely physical, adultery is internal. Adultery doesn't begin in a bed or with secret communications or even with flirting. It begins in the heart, Jesus says. Matthew 15, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, there is no harmless fantasy. There isn't. The sinful desire for one who is not your spouse is sin. And it incurs guilt before God. Yes, that woman may be paying more attention to you. Yes, it may seem that she is dressing to get your attention. Yes, that man may be, you know, kinder to you and more thoughtful lately and more complimentary. But the temptation doesn't lie in them. The blame for the temptation doesn't lie in them. The blame for the draw doesn't lie in them. And it certainly doesn't lie in the spouse who you think could be or should be a different person. It lies in here. James writes, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Being enticed there is like biting down on a fish hook. The bait looks good because the fish wants the bait. If there, I trust that if there was a string hanging right in front of you with a worm on it, no matter how close you were to lunch, you're not biting down on that thing. Why? Because you don't want to. Because you don't want that bait. The problem isn't that the bait is out there. The problem is that our wanters are broken. That's what the problem is. If my wanter wasn't broken, you could put bait all around me and it wouldn't matter. Because nothing can force you into sin. No one else can make you sin. There is no circumstance so pressurized that the only way out is sin. 
It's simply not the case. If our desires are not evil, then nothing can draw us into sin. You cannot sin apart from a heart that has gone wrong. You just can't do it. I can't do it. I mean, let that sink in. Because the blame shifting of the garden has stayed with humanity all of these years. And the blame for my temptation or your temptation, we would gladly put it on a number of other things. That husband who, does, who isn't very caring toward me, who doesn't give me gifts like he used to, who doesn't say the nice things that he used to. That wife who, who, who just has completely changed, she doesn't seem to care about me like she used to. Friends, none of that is to blame because if all that's to blame, you can commit adultery and stand righteous before God. Internal adultery. Because you say, well, it was her. It was, it was the pornography industry. They made me do it. Now, the pornography industry is heinous and ought to be eliminated. And it's a terrible trap that many people walk willingly into not because the pornography industry can come out and bring you in, but because your heart says, I'm looking for something, something that will satisfy me that I can't find anywhere else. Well, I'll go there. It doesn't hurt anybody. Oh, but friend, it does. It does. Adultery begins on the inside with the heart. So Solomon tells his son this about the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. In other words, she can't capture you unless you want to be captured. You remember playing with your kids? You play tag with your kids? I hope that most of us are faster than them, at least for a time. Right? You're playing tag or you're playing football, you can run away. They will never catch you. They will never bring you down. But what does, what does dear old dad do after he feels good about himself? At least when they're young. I mean, when they get older, you know, all bets are off. But when they're young, you're going, and oh, 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 you got me. The fact of the matter is they wouldn't get you unless you wanted them to. And that's the same with this. That's what Solomon's telling his son. She can't get you unless you want her to. Instead, he says in chapter 4, keep your heart with all vigilance. Keep it. Guard it. Protect it. Beware of what you feed your heart, friends. Beware of explicit material. Beware of innuendo. Beware of sexually immoral joking. Beware of certain novels. Now listen, this isn't the kind of thing that is just for today. Back in 1692, Thomas Watson wrote these words, As the reading of Scripture stirs up love to God, so reading vile books stirs up the mind to wickedness. To this I may add lascivious pictures, which bewitch the eye and are incendiaries to lust. They secretly convey poison to the heart. Beware. 
Be careful of your interactions. Beware of your emails and your Facebook groups. Beware of quote-unquote harmless flirting. Beware of the depth of your friendships with those of the opposite sex who are not your spouse. Beware within your marriage of not confessing and forgiving sin on a regular basis. Beware of holding a grudge. Beware of comparing your spouse to other people. Beware a complaining spirit that looks for something better. Guard your heart. You see, that's not actually just for married folks. That's for single. You, you've, you, you, you men and women who are single, you teenagers who are thinking about dating all the time, it seems. Don't give, don't just give your heart to whoever comes along because they look good, because they make you feel special, because they give you attention. Even if they are Christians, don't insert a rotating door in your heart for boys and girls, for men and women to just come right in and out of. Do you know what that could do apart from God's grace? That could train your heart to always be looking for something better. That could train your heart to go after whatever looks good at the moment. That could train your heart and give you a mindset that can easily lead to adultery in the future. And friends, adultery is devastating. For these Israelites who are receiving this command, it will incur the death penalty. Leviticus 20 says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adultery and, adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That penalty is not in force today because the church doesn't operate a society with those kinds of laws. We are building a kingdom. However, adultery is equally devastating today. Today, people see adultery as a way of escape, as a way of, you know, finding the greener grass that's on the other side, not realizing that it was spray-painted green, just to look like it was greener on the other side. It's devastating. It's the theft of another man's wife, of another woman's husband. It's, it reduces human beings to beasts who are driven by just carnal instinct rather than by conscience and by morality. In describing the adulterer in Jeremiah 5, God says they were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. The adulterer is pictured just as an animal. It, adultery proves one is irresponsible. You remember when King David commits adultery? He's supposed to be out leading his army, but what does he do? He stays home. And he feeds his lust instead. Adultery tears at the fabric of a family. Adultery just, just rips away stability from children. Adultery tears at the fabric of society. Adultery, adultery proves that one is foolish and dishonorable. Proverbs 6, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. And in the end, friends, adultery brings God's judgment. Hebrews 13 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral 
and adulterous. You shall not commit adultery. Not in your heart and not in life. As the Old Testament progresses, adultery becomes more than just the breaking of these marital vows. Adultery becomes more than the unfaithfulness of one spouse to another. Adultery actually becomes a picture of unfaithfulness itself. So that in the prophetic writings, God says that He is the ever-faithful one, and God says that those who, who sin, who run after idols, they are committing adultery against Him. That picture actually continues into the New Testament when James talks about the sins of Christians. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that, the friend, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Being friends with the world, going the world's way, thinking the world's thoughts, adopting the world's Morality, adopting the world's values, is adultery. Let that sink in. Who is the adulterer then? All of us. Because Paul says in Ephesians 2 that before we met Christ, we were following the course of this world. We were BFFs with this world and everything it has to offer. We found it here. So we are the adulterers. We deserve to be condemned. But there is hope for the adulterer. In John chapter 8, a group of religious men bring a woman to Jesus. And she's been caught in the act of adultery. And they're ready to stone her because that's what the law prescribes. But Jesus stops the whole thing. Not because she's not guilty. Not because adultery doesn't really matter. Not because she doesn't deserve punishment. Jesus stands between the punisher and the sinner to give grace rather than the condemnation that she deserves. And actually, that's the story of Jesus' whole mission, isn't it? You see, we are the adulterers. We have been caught in the act over and over and over and over again. Our guilt is clear and the stones of judgment are raised against us and, and rightly so. But Jesus came to intervene not to stop the condemnation but to take the condemnation. He receives the death penalty that our adultery deserves 
when he goes to the cross and he does it so that rather than condemnation we have grace and forgiveness you see friend your sin means that you are an adulterer you have stepped out on God you have abandoned him and gone all over town looking anywhere and everywhere for, the satis- for satisfaction, looking anywhere and everywhere except to the God who created you, except to the God who loves you. You may have stepped out and you're looking to your husband or wife for that satisfaction. You may have stepped out and looked towards some other guy that you're dating or gal that you're dating for that satisfaction. You may have looked at your career for that satisfaction. You may have looked at your sports for that satisfaction. You may have looked at any number of things, the money that you can earn, the things that you can afford just to have that satisfaction. And you can't find it. And you never will. Your heart will remain restless until it finds its rest in the Lord Himself. You will continue committing this adultery until you see the heavenly husband who loves you. And He sent Jesus as the lover of your soul And look, friend, you may think about that and you may not be able to look Jesus in the eye because of your shame, because of your adultery, because you know that what you've done is wrong. But if you will come to him by faith, if you will leave all of the adultery behind, all the sin behind, if you will stop looking other places and start looking to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, he will lift your head and he will forgive your betrayal and he will take you in his arms and he will love you with an everlasting love. Oh, love that will not let me go. A love that left the heavenly Father to come and hold fast to you. Would you come to Him? Would you turn to Him? There is no but what about that you're hanging on in your heart. You know, but what about, but what about, but what about? There is nothing that this love will not cover. There is no one this love will not receive when they come in faith. Any member of this church would love nothing more than to talk with you about that. I would. I'll be out in the foyer after the service, after we sing the last song. I'd love to just set a time for us to talk. But don't, 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 don't walk away from a love that will never let you go. And for those of us who know that love, those of us who know that grace, those of us who know that forgiveness, those of us who know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have been set free from that condemnation, Jesus looks at you and He looks at me in the same way that He looked at that adulterous woman. And He says, go. And from now on, sin no more. I will be with you. My spirit is with you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Let's pray together.
Father, how thankful we are for the gift of marriage. How thankful we are for the greater gift of our Lord Jesus Christ and his love that will not let us go. His love that holds us fast. God, I pray that you will give us all eyes of faith to see the beauty of that love and forgiveness. I pray for those whose heads are hung low because of the shame in their own heart, because of the sin they know is there, because of the guilt they know is real. Lord, I pray for them that you would give them grace to come to Jesus and find their head lifted and find the embrace of their loving Savior. For those of us who are married, oh God, give us grace to preserve that marriage, to guard it and to protect it, to guard our hearts and protect our hearts. Lord, keep us from, from wandering physically and internally for your glory and for our good. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a song uh, to close.